I love a good mystery, and so does everyone else. In fact, everyone loves a good family mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's Journey. I know that our listeners will absolutely love this game because you are uncovering the mystery of June's sister's murder, and you're becoming a detective. You're looking for clues, and each scene will lead you to a new thrilling storyline. This is a great way to engage your observation skills to uncover key pieces of information that lead you on to many chapters of mystery, danger, and romance. Right now, I'm in the process of interviewing family members, and this is bringing me back, just so you know, to my days in law enforcement, and I'm having such a blast with it because it is so much more lighthearted, but it also has the mystery of where will this take me? You can even chat and play with or against other players by joining a detective club. You'll even get the chance to play in a detective league to put your skills to the test. Megan, I think we should join a detective club together. We've got this. (laughs) Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. June needs your help, detective. Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast contains sensitive topics and discussions. Listener discretion is advised. A young woman's brutal murder is solved and her killers punished. But was this true justice or a rush to judgment? This is the Teresa Halbach story. Amy. Hey, Megan. How are you today? Happy almost Halloween. I'm so excited. Oh, yes. Do you know this year I decorated for the first time? My kids are really into it and I know you're really into it. It's kind of fun. Oh my gosh, it was so much fun. We have really obscene things laying on the lawn though. I'm not going to kid you. Like we, we went a little dark with this. You went like fun and happy, right? Yes, of course. Everything's like a cute little ghost that says boo. We have a body bag laying on the front lawn among (gasps) headstones. Yeah, my kids would be scared. (laughs) Oh, but my neighbor stopped to tell me how amazing she thought it was. So I feel like mission accomplished. I won't say that. I I can't even take credit for it. James did most of the decorating. He did a good job, but it's really fun. And I really like Halloween. And this year, today's episode airs on Halloween. And so I wanted to pick a case that had some relation to this day. And I found one that I think you know very well. Most of our listeners will know this as well. But there are a lot of updates to this story, so trust me, there will still be surprises. Also, Amy, as you know, this case has become very significant in the world of potential wrongful convictions and true crime documentaries, and I can see why. The story is very powerful. Megan, before you jump into today's case, I just want to say a quick word about ASC. We mentioned in an earlier recording that you and I will both be at the American Society of Criminology Conference, and we received a few emails from listeners who will be there as well. 
And they said that they would love to do a meetup. Oh. So both of us will be in Philadelphia because we both have presentations. And if you are in the Philadelphia area and you want to meet up, even if you're not going to the conference, just reach out to us and we'll put together like a little hang. Yeah. We're there the 15th to the 17th. Is that correct? That is correct. We are there November 15th and we leave November 17th. So maybe November 16th. I'm not exactly sure, but, you know, reach out and then we'll get something going. I think that's great. Thanks, Amy. Um, I know you'd mentioned it to me and I, I already forgot about it. So thank you for staying on top of that. Before I introduce the subject of today's episode, I just want to say that this is one of those cases that is very polarizing. There are substantial questions about whether justice has been served or not. So in this regard, we have to consider both the victim and also the perpetrator's families. You know, there are possibly many victims in this story and secondary victims. So though we have a legal conclusion in this case, there are many questions that still remain. And we hope that they are answered at some point so everyone can have some form of justice for their loved ones. And so in that regard, I'd just like to say that there are a couple of different sides to the story, and many people will have strong feelings about that. And I think that's fine as long as we air those feelings respectfully. I know that I'm open to different sides of the story, and I bet, Amy, you and I will fall on possibly different sides as well. But so I hope that we can all have discussions about this in a respectful manner, because I look forward to that kind of engagement and dialogue. Yes. Thank you, Megan. Now let's meet Teresa Halbeck. Teresa was a promising, lovely young woman who was described by family and friends as lively and excited for her life. She was just 25 years old at the time of events we're covering today. Born and raised on a dairy farm in Calumet County, Wisconsin, Teresa was one of five children. She had two sisters and two brothers. Now, Calumet County is known for its cheese production and it's located along Lake Winnebago in the northeastern part of the state. The county has a population of 55,000, but the town where Teresa's family owned their farm was just a small town of 1,100 people. Teresa was an honor student at the University of Wisconsin, Green Bay location from where she graduated in 2002. And after graduating, Teresa lived next door to her parents for a while in a farmhouse that was owned by her parents. So they gave her, you know, a pretty good deal on rent while she got established. You remember this time in your life, right? In your early 20s where you're really trying first jobs. Mm -hmm. You don't have a lot of money. Yeah. I lived in my mother's garage for a year in between undergraduate and graduate school. I did not know that. Yes. I came home from college. I think I was home for six months until I literally had enough money to put down security and one month rent. And then I was out the door. Mm hmm. Okay, well, Teresa, like I said, uh, was establishing herself. She was very close with her family, spending nights over at their house, watching shows that she loved, like Extreme Makeover, Home Edition. She helped on the farm. This is a close family. Teresa even coached her younger sister's volleyball team, which I think is so very sweet. Sounds very idyllic. I think so. It sounds like, a, you know, they were just a nice, close family who liked to be together. It sounds like, in general, Teresa had enthusiasm for many different things. And while she had been involved in a relationship with her high school sweetheart, Ryan Halegas, for part of high school and part of college, at the time of the events we discussed today, she was not in a relationship. But she was just 25 years old and she looked forward to meeting someone and falling in love again. All the things, again, that you we could probably relate to. Teresa had made a video diary just a few years before she died discussing how happy she was 
having loved and been loved. She talked about her dreams of becoming a mother someday. And she talked about her passion for photography. Her passion for photography actually turned into her profession. In 2005, Teresa became a freelance photographer who took photos at weddings and other special events. And she happened to freelance for autotrader.com, taking pictures of cars for sale. It was in this position that Teresa found herself at the Avery's Auto Salvage Yard. Now, in the fall of 2005, Teresa was hired by a man named Stephen Avery to photograph a vehicle at the Avery Auto Salvage Yard. Stephen Avery and his brother Charles lived and worked at the salvage yard on this 40-acre piece of land, which was owned by their parents. They also had another brother who worked there but did not live on the property. Avery's sister, Barb Janda, also lived in a trailer on the property with her three sons, Bobby, Blaine, and Brendan Dassey, and her boyfriend, Scott Tadeich. So there are quite a few people living throughout the grounds. And there's also, I mean, this is a 40-acre piece of land, but there's also sheds, garages, vehicles, vehicle parts, and various auto equipment on the property. Amy, also on this property, there was about 4,000 vehicles. So, oh, wow. Yeah, there's a lot of vehicles. Now, Teresa had taken photos for the Avery family on five occasions prior between June and October of that year. And by all accounts, Teresa was not very happy about having to go back. It's been widely reported that on one occasion, she told a coworker that Stephen Avery answered the door in just a towel. And she thought that was very creepy. Because if it's true, that is very creepy. Mm -hmm. So on the afternoon of Halloween 2005, Teresa found herself at the salvage yard hoping to just take the photos and go. Uh, Quick question, Megan. Any other reports of this type of behavior or just that one occasion? So it was just the one time that she reported that specific type of behavior. But we'll get into other Mm -hmm. things as I unfold the events here and tell the story. And while she went to the salvage yard on the in the afternoon of October 31st, by November 3rd, Teresa's mother had filed a missing persons report because no one had seen or heard from her since she went to the salvage yard. Now, remember, I also said that Teresa was, by the way, she wasn't answering her phone calls, but she was 25 years old. She had friends. She had a life. So mm-hmm. I think that her family was worried, but also wanted to give her a little space in case she was just out being 25 and doing things. Mm-hmm. But Teresa was a wonderful person and reportedly loved by so many. And when the town heard that she was missing, tons of volunteers banded together to search for her. And while they didn't find Teresa, they did discover her Toyota RAV4 on the Avery Salvage Yard property just two days later. It was covered with branches, wood, and the old hood of another car. Did it look like it was trying to be hidden? There's some speculation about this. They said yes, but if it was, it was a kind of a bad hiding job. And why on a property with all these vehicles would you have to hide it? I would say you'd have to hide it because it's a wanted car. But mm-hmm. there's a lot of discussion about what the what the true purpose of covering it was for. Mm-hmm. And when law enforcement found that, they were quick to get a search warrant for the property. And they performed six searches between November 5th and November 12th. Did they question any of the any of the people living on the property at this point? Yes, I'll get to that. In these searches, they uncovered the following. Burned bone fragments in a burn pit behind Stephen Avery's garage. Blood in the front and the cargo area of Teresa's RAV4. Remains of a cell phone, Palm Pilot, and camera in a burn barrel in the yard. And in a final search of Stephen Avery's trailer, officers found the key to Teresa's car in the bedroom of Stephen Avery's trailer. Police also found two firearms, one of which was a rifle, 
And in a search conducted months later, they found a bullet and fragments in the Avery's garage that came from a rifle and had DNA on them. Whose DNA? You'll have to hold on to that. When questioned, Stephen Avery initially, without a lawyer, said that Teresa had photographed a minivan for him that afternoon between 2 and 3 p.m., and he paid her $40 and never saw her again. The police did not believe him, though. And while the initial searches slapped him with charges for the possession of illegal firearms, just days later on November 15th, Stephen Avery was charged with Teresa's murder and held on $500,000 bail. What's most interesting is that Stephen Avery was well-known to the police already. In 1985, Stephen Avery was convicted of the vicious sexual assault and beating of a 36-year-old woman named Penny Bierstein. Though he claimed he was innocent and had alibi witnesses, Penny picked Stephen out of a photograph lineup pretty quickly. What happened to his alibi? You said he had alibi witnesses. Those alibis never came forward? or No, he I mean, had witnesses. alibi witnesses. It's uh-huh. one of those cases where we've seen this happen before, where mm-hmm. someone has alibi witnesses and the jury doesn't believe them. Were they close family or friends? I think they were family and friends, so I think that's okay. probably why. The case went to trial and Stephen was convicted of the sexual assault and attempted homicide of the victim, for which he received a 32-year sentence. He appealed it, but it wasn't until the Innocence Project took on his case that he was able to persuade a judge to allow DNA testing of hairs found on the victim. And it turned out that the DNA was not a match to Stephen Avery. It matched a violent convicted rapist named Gregory Allen who was already serving a long sentence for another sexual assault. In Penny Bierstein's defense, if you look at the photos of Stephen Avery and Gregory Allen, the two could have been twins, is what I thought. Interesting. They looked very similar. So after serving 18 years for a crime he did not commit, Stephen Avery was released and exonerated in 2003. Shortly after his release, he filed a $36 million lawsuit against Manitoba County, for wrongful conviction, a suit that was still pending at the time of Teresa's murder in 2005. And Megan, he didn't have any priors when he was convicted of that crime? Actually, he had previous convictions for burglary, cruelty to animals. Specifically, Amy, he set a cat on fire and watched it die, and it was his family's cat. Also, Amy, I want to point out that he did this in front of people. They were at a bonfire. He did it as a joke. And this is his family's pet. I mean, this is a big red flag, just to be clear. Yeah, very sadistic. He was also arrested or convicted for being a felon in possession of a firearm. I don't know if you knew this, but he used this firearm to threaten his cousin, pointing a gun at her, like a loaded gun at her, for allegedly spreading rumors about him that he did not like. So, He also had several documented incidents of domestic violence against his ex-wife and former fiance, including beating and strangling one of them. Okay, so clearly violent tendencies, even though he was wrongfully convicted of that particular sexual assault and attempted murder. This is somebody that has been violent and violent towards women. Absolutely. So I think maybe we can see how with this documented past, violence towards women and the evidence found on his property, the police were pretty certain that he was the person who murdered Teresa. Mm -hmm. While Stephen awaited trial, investigators conducted interviews with everyone who lived or worked at the Avery Salvage Yard. But one person in particular stood out to them, and that was Brendan Dassey, Stephen's 16-year-old nephew. The police believed Brendan had information after an initial interview in February of 2006. 
I'd like to point out here that Brendan's IQ was borderline. So even though he was 16, his functionality was closer to that of a child. And in fact, you're still considered a child at 16. After two more interviews with the teenager without his mother in his presence, investigators asked his mother if they could interview him again. And this final interview was conducted on March 1st, 2016. It was during this controversial interview that Brendan confessed to participating in a sexual assault and the murder of Teresa Halbach, as well as the mutilation of her body in an effort to dispose of the evidence. Over the course of several hours, with the police telling Brendan that they already knew it all, because you can hear that in the video, a clearly scared Brendan confessed in detail to the following. Coming home from school and his uncle inviting him into his trailer, showing him Teresa bound in the bedroom. His uncle encouraging him to sexually assault Teresa while she pled for him to stop and help her. His claims that he did sexually assault her after his uncle kind of pushed him into this Mm -hmm. and his uncle stabbing and shooting Teresa and Brendan at his uncle's command slitting Teresa's throat. Brendan was arrested and charged with sexual assault, murder, and mutilation of a corpse. And this was a shocking turn of events. Was there any corroborating evidence of his confession at this point? No, there was not. None. But nevertheless, both Brendan and his uncle Stephen were headed to trial. And they were tried separately or together? Separately. I I think probably because he was also a child. You know, sometimes Mm -hmm. people are tried together, but not in this case. No. They were trying him as an adult, I would imagine, though. Yes, Brendan Dassey was tried as an adult. Yes. Mm -hmm. Stephen Avery's trial was held first in March of 2007. Now, Amy, at this 27-day trial, the prosecution presented a lot of evidence. I'm going to sum up the major pieces of evidence, but I am sure that I can't, in this one episode, get every single piece. So please keep this in mind. These are the major pieces of evidence. They presented the blood found, Teresa's blood found in her vehicle. They presented a spent bullet with Teresa's DNA on it that matched Stephen Avery's rifle. Remember a while ago you asked me whose DNA? Well, it was Teresa's. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, they presented the fact that Stephen possessed a key to her vehicle in his trailer and that it also had his DNA on it. Avery's DNA was found under the hood latch of um, Teresa's, the hood of her car. It wasn't blood. This DNA, I think, was sweat. Stephen's blood was also found inside Teresa's vehicle. The burnt remains of Teresa's body and her belongings were all found on the Avery property close to his residence. Mm -hmm. There was also phone call evidence. Did you know about this? I didn't until very recently. No, and I read a book all about this case. I actually never watched the documentary, but remind me of the phone calls. I don't think I remember. So cell phone records show that Stephen called Teresa's cell phone twice, once at 2.24 p.m., and a second time at 2.35 p.m. So this is presumably before she arrived, but he used the star six, seven feature. Do you know what the star six, seven feature is? Do you remember? Yeah, that's so the person you're calling doesn't know it's you. Exactly. So why would he do this? Why would he do this? Okay, and then he calls again at 4.35 p.m. This time, not using the star six, seven feature. Okay, so this doesn't look good for him. It looks as if maybe he he maybe did not know that the police would be able to see that he used star six, seven. I would imagine that's exactly why. I don't think anyone, I wouldn't actually know you could trace that feature, but apparently the phone company could. 
Bobby Dassey, Brendan's older brother, also testified that he saw Teresa headed towards his uncle's trailer that afternoon of her murder and that he overheard his uncle in a later conversation discussing disposal of Teresa's body. So this was very key testimony as well from Bobby Dassey. Bobby had nothing to say about whether or not his brother was involved. He did not implicate his brother from what I recall. Okay. The evidence at trial then seemed overwhelming. But what was Stephen's defense? Well, the crux of the defense was that Stephen was being framed by the Manitowoc County Police because of this $36 million lawsuit. I'd like to point out also, this lawsuit was settled for just $400,000 in 2006 while Stephen awaited trial. Now, I imagine he settled this suit because he needed the money for his defense. The defense claimed that police planted blood in Teresa's vehicle using blood evidence that had been collected from the Penny Bierstein case in which he was wrongfully convicted. They also focused on the discovery of that key to Teresa's vehicle. It was found in Stephen's trailer, but it wasn't found right away. It was one of the last searches. I think, in fact, it might have been the last. It was either the fourth search or the fifth or sixth search. So why couldn't they find the key? Was it hiding or was it in plain sight? It was kind of in like it was kind of in sight, but it was behind an end table. The defense argued that the key only contained Stephen's DNA and not Teresa's. So that's strange, right? If this is the key to her vehicle that they found, why would her DNA not be on it and only his, suggesting that it was planted and he was framed? Okay. But what would the jury think in the end? Well, I think most of us know the outcome here. They convicted Avery of all charges and sentenced him to life in prison. Now, as for Brendan Dassey, his case proceeded to trial just after his uncle's in April of 2007 and lasted for just nine days. The evidence against Brendan rested mostly on his own confession, though that confession's legitimacy would become the source of much speculation. So I'm going to read you a portion of the interview and see what you think. This is after Brendan had told the police that he and Stephen had sexually assaulted Teresa, that Stephen choked and stabbed her, and at Stephen's command, Brendan slit her throat. These statements were also made at the urging of investigators who kept telling Brendan that they needed to know what else. Now, he had some contradictions in arriving at this point, but here's a bit after these admissions. So there's going to be a couple of police officers here and Dassey, okay? Weigert, what else happens to her in the head? Fassbender, it's extremely, extremely important you tell us this for us to believe you. Weigert, come on, Dassey, what else? Fassbender, we know, we just need you to tell us. Dassey says, that's all I can remember. Weigert, all right, I'm just going to come out and ask you, who shot her in the head? Dassey says, he did. Fassbender says, then why didn't you tell us that? Dassey responds, because I couldn't think of it. So we'll save our analysis of Brendan Dassey's confession for the end, but you can probably see here some coaxing. And Brendan Dassey took the stand during his trial. I don't know if you recall that, saying that this was all a lie. He lied to the police at their kind of urging and, and at their coercion. As for other evidence, Brendan's jeans had bleach on them corroborating his part of the story about cleaning up Teresa's blood after her murder, because he did say that he cleaned up. But Brendan, again, recanted his confession and said that the bleach was easily explained because he was helping clean up a garage and they used bleach in the garage. The physical evidence was plenty, but it didn't connect Brendan to the crime necessarily. But again, it's the jury who has the final say. And ultimately, a jury convicted 17-year-old Brendan Dassey, tried as an adult, as you pointed out, and sentenced him to a term of life in prison. There was zero DNA evidence connecting him to the crime, right? Yes, he was not connected through DNA evidence. Really, it was his confession and the genes. 
No corroborating witness statements? No. Very, very little evidence here. Then again, the witnesses would be his family members who lived on the property as well. But yeah, this is a pretty weak case. It's not strong, no. So Brendan was convicted to life in prison with parole eligibility, a possibility in the year 2048. But as most of us know, that wasn't the end to this story. Netflix made a documentary about this case. You know, that small documentary titled The Making of a Murderer, which debuted in 2015? (laughs) Yeah. I don't know if you know this, but the documentary was originally turned down by PBS and HBO, even though Netflix would buy the rights. I bet they're kicking themselves. (laughs) I know. I mean, this documentary had record-breaking viewership with almost 20 million people watching it. The film chronicled the arrest and trials of both Stephen and his nephew, Brendan, showing the problems with the Dassey confession, the other evidence against Stephen Avery, and the conflict he had with the county over his wrongful conviction. It essentially questioned the convictions and had most of us thinking twice about whether Stephen and Brendan had fair trials and whether they might be actually innocent. As of 2016, famed wrongful conviction attorney Kathleen Zellner, who we know well, took on Stephen Avery's case. You covered Kathleen Zellner as one of the trailblazers and women in our field that we sometimes cover. And this was way back, Megan. This was episode 21 in season one. I can't believe it was that long ago already. But yes, so if you're interested in learning more about the cases that Kathleen Zellner has handled, go back and listen. Making a Murderer Part 2 came out, and that focused heavily on Zellner's work to show that the evidence didn't quite fit and that there were other suspects who could have killed Teresa. So while many people argue that making a murderer was skewed, and I mean, I would agree, Mm -hmm. it's a documentary, we should also remember that the prosecution wouldn't participate, and that's what happens when one side refuses to contribute, right? We've seen this in our own work. Do we know why the prosecution didn't want to contribute? Just the normal reasons of just not wanting to get involved? I think they also realized they were questioning the legitimacy of the wrongful conviction and probably did not want to interview regarding those aspects. But I think that there's a few things the docuseries left out, and I think they're significant. So I just want to cover a few of them. One was those phone calls that Stephen made to Teresa's phone. I think that's pretty significant, to be honest. And it also didn't talk about her previous interaction with Stephen and how she was a little bit creeped out by him. So you're saying the documentary didn't mention these things at all? Yeah, Making a Murderer did not mention these things. Mm -hmm. Um, I found them on my own. And also, there's a new documentary. It's called Convicting a Murderer. Mm -hmm. And so I was kind of curious what their take. I mean, it's called Convicting a Murderer, so I, I kind of knew what it would be. They cover some of the stuff that was left out, though, as well. But again, that one is skewed towards guilt. So you got to take that with a grain of salt. Um, again, those phone calls that utilized Star 6-7, but why would you do that? I don't think this is that significant, but some other people might. It's a little strange. The police found leg irons and handcuffs Avery had previously purchased. Hmm. And some might say, for what purpose? He said it was in relation to his sexual activity with his partner. And that very well could be the case. Um, I'd like to point out that Teresa's DNA was not found on any of these items. Another thing they left out was Avery's history of violence against women, which was seriously downplayed in Making a Murderer. So either it was left out or it was downplayed. And while I know it does not indicate guilt, it sure does show a pattern of violence against women. And I think that is very important in this case. Would you agree, Amy? Yes, I also think it's important if you're going to tell a story, it's important to tell all sides of it. Yes, the the makers of Making a Murderer said their defense was, well, we couldn't show everything. It's a documentary, but it does seem uh-huh. they left out things yeah. that, you know, didn't support the certain narrative of his innocence. Mm-hmm. 
They did not discuss the bullet with Teresa's DNA that matched Avery's rifle. And this was a spent bullet. And I think this is also very significant. Mm -hmm. Now, the vial of blood. I want to discuss this really quickly because remember, the crux of the defense was that blood was taken from Stephen's earlier sample and used. Mm -hmm. It appeared that the blood was tampered with, okay, as there was a hole in the rubber stopper top portion of the vial and the seal was broken. But later it's revealed that the prison nurse who drew Stephen Avery's blood said she put the hole in it when depositing the blood into the vial, which was standard practice. Okay. And it turns out that Avery's own defense team was the ones who broke the seal on the blood vial years ago in 2002 when they were working on his appeal for the sexual assault case. All right. So it sounds like they have zero evidence to support this theory. Depends on which way you look at it, right? Another thing that they left out, and I'm not sure how I feel about this, but I will say that Dassey's interview was hours long, and he made many other incriminating statements that the police say were unsolicited. So the police claim that they believe Dassey knew something, but they didn't think that he was a suspect at first. They didn't even think he was involved. They just thought he was hiding something to protect his uncle. But they say as the interview went on, he was making admissions that were not fitting with someone who was innocent and he was admitting parts of the crime. And they say that, you know, those parts were not shown in the documentary, which could be true if you looked at the interview in its entirety. But media aside, where do the cases stand today? And has justice been served for Teresa and her family? Well, let's start with Brendan Dassey. Dassey's conviction was briefly overturned in 2016. Things were looking hopeful for him until the appellate court later reversed this decision in 2017, finding that his confession was obtained legally. That was the whole issue. Was his confession coerced? Was it legal? The courts in 2017 said it sure was, and they were going to let it stand. Megan, wasn't there an issue with his state of mind? Not his state of mind. It was his age and his IQ. Yes. It's, his IQ. Okay. He's 16 and his borderline IQ, which we know is very problematic in mm -hmm. um, confessions. In 2018, the U.S. Supreme Court denied hearing his case, and the current governor does not intend to pardon Brendan. So it looks like Brendan Dassey doesn't have many options left, though a future pardon is possible. And also, as we know, new evidence can help a defendant get back into state court. But those would be the avenues right now for legal relief for Brendan Dassey. Wouldn't you say in, you know, in public opinion, there seems to be more support for him than for his uncle? Oh, absolutely. I think there's a lot more support for Brendan. As you pointed out, there wasn't really much evidence other than his own confession tying him to this crime. And he was a child yeah. um, dealing with seasoned investigators who were pushing him. You know, he was seen as kind of bullied around a bit. Yeah. And a lot of experts on false confession have scrutinized that confession and have come out publicly to talk about some of the issues they see. Yes. So I, I do think there is a lot more support for Brendan. As for Stephen, his appeals have been denied to date as well. But let me briefly summarize this. The Wisconsin appellate courts have denied him relief, though he has been granted post-conviction scientific testing. We know that Kathleen Zellner's had evidence tested. Kathleen Zellner filed a request for a new trial based on ineffective counsel at Stephen Avery's trial and Brady violations. So that's Brady violations are the withholding of certain evidence. But this motion was denied in 2017. In August of 2022, Zellner filed a new motion for post-conviction relief, claiming that new witnesses would link Bobby Dassey, the older brother of Brendan, to the murder of Teresa. This was kind of a bombshell. I was going to say that's the first time we were even hearing that theory. 
Um, you know, there was whisper of it. I did read something earlier, but this was the first time it was made public. She put it in a claim. They're saying also Stephen could be granted relief if there are very plausible other suspects. But it sounds like in order for us to believe that Stephen Avery is innocent, we would have to believe that both Bobby was framing him along with the police framing him. So now is Bobby working in cahoots with the police or these are just two, you know, two separate entities who are trying to get Stephen Avery? Hold that thought because that's a very, very good point. But I think you're going to see this even clearer in a moment. Mm -hmm. So just just about the sorry about Bobby Dassey. Uh, Zellner has an affidavit from a truck driver named Thomas Buresh who said that he saw Bobby Dassey driving Teresa's RAV4 in the days after her death and that he saw someone in the passenger seat who was not Stephen. Okay. I don't think, I mean, he could still be driving the car. It doesn't mean he had anything to do with the murder. That's true. Bobby Dassey's computer history showed that he searched violent pornography. Again, yes, that could mean anything, right? It doesn't support guilt. But Bobby Dassey and his mother's boyfriend, remember his mother, Barb? Mm -hmm. Her boyfriend, Scott Tadeich, they were each other's alibis, but no one else could alibi them. And Scott Tadeich has a previous conviction for battery and a reported temper. But from what I reviewed, that's really the extent of Zellner's connection at this point. So she's also then implicating Scott Tadeich, I think, um, as either lying or having some involvement. I want to point out, because I think this is important and I don't know how many people know this, but Zellner also had previously suggested that Teresa's ex-boyfriend, Ryan, was a suspect as well. Hmm. Yeah, Ryan, I didn't hear much about this during the documentary or really at all during the case. And I think it was my cousin. I was speaking with my cousin about this case a while ago, and he pointed out, he's like, remember the boyfriend? Someone pointed the finger at him. He acted weird. I'm like, all right, so I had to look into this angle, right? So Ryan Halegas had no alibi for the time of the crime. He was able to access Teresa's voicemail somehow. He said that she and her friends together, they kind of figured out her password because everyone was trying to find Teresa. But it was really him who figured it out and accessed it. He inserted himself into the case early on. He was one of those, uh, just so you know, one of those volunteer searchers. He was kind of the head of one of the teams. And something that um, Zellner said was very odd. He didn't tell police that he was previously Teresa's boyfriend, which is a little odd. But again, a lot of possible links here. But I'm not hearing real evidence to suggest Ryan did anything as well. And again, if Ryan if Ryan was the offender here, then he would have to be the one who's in on framing Stephen Avery as well. Do is there any connection between these two men? No. And what what like what does he have against Avery that he would frame him? Well, they, Zellner said it wasn't what he had against Avery. It was what he had against Teresa. She had broken his heart. Was the idea here? He couldn't let mm -hmm. it go. I think this is a lazy explanation. I mean, these are the these are the explanations. Though Zellner requested a hearing based on the alternate suspects in this case, the court denied the request, essentially holding that the defense had not shown a motive for these suspects, that they had any knowledge to plant evidence and frame Avery. Why would they? Because that all has to be part of the claim or that Stephen Avery was framed at all. They actually said something. One of the courts on the record said something about I don't know if it was a judge or a prosecutor. But I read something about you should be careful about implicating other people when you're trying to mm -hmm. defend someone who, you know, yep. you thought was wrongfully convicted mm -hmm. as well, which I think is a fair statement. So that's where the case stands today with Zellner saying that she will file an appeal uh, with the Wisconsin State's Court of Appeals. 
But today, somewhat differently, Amy, now that we know the case, I'd like to turn to our thoughts on the criminal justice system before we talk about the causes of these crimes. And I think you'll see Mm -hmm. why it makes more sense this way. Any questions before I move on? Just a statement that this has come up in the past. I have a lot of trouble when there's somebody that I respect so much, such as Kathleen Zellner. If she's getting behind Stephen Avery, it makes me feel as though he that he might be innocent because she is not the type of person who is going to waste her precious time defending someone that she doesn't believe in. And if she believes in him, I respect her so much that it makes me want to believe in him. It's hard to. But it's hard. It makes you want to believe in him. I know. I I understand completely. She's exonerated. I mean, a lot of, you know, I would say innocent people. And I understand exactly what you're saying. And I feel the same, except in this Mm -hmm. case, I'm just not sure that she's backing the right horse. I also think it's possible that while she may not believe in his innocence, she might believe that there was some corruption going on and she's standing behind justice and fairness and believes that something's fishy here. Yes. You know what? That's a great point and a very real possibility. It might not necessarily be just about his innocence or guilt, but it's about protecting the procedure Mm -hmm. for everyone else. So, you know, did the system get it right? That's the big unanswered question in this case for so many people. For Teresa's family and those involved in the prosecution and many others, yes, the system punished two offenders for a heinous crime. And the problem was that, you know, it became a media spectacle. So the perpetrators were essentially turned into potential victims. For the other side, for Stephen Avery, Brendan Dassey, their families and their lawyers, this is yet another miscarriage of justice. This is the most complicated of questions, but I'm going to give you my opinion in the end and you can give me yours, even though I kind of think I know where you're going to land as well. Yeah. I believe there was a serious procedural injustice when it comes to Brendan Dassey, and I do think this is likely a coerced confession. Whether in part true or not, I don't believe, um, I have serious doubts about his involvement in this crime, and I would probably err on, I think he should be given relief, Brendan Dassey, because I really don't know what his involvement was, and I do believe interrogating a 16-year-old in a scary situation without a parent Several times who has borderline IQ. It's it's not okay. It's not something I I support. Mm -hmm. As for Avery, I hold an entirely different opinion. I do believe that Stephen Avery is guilty. And I do think the punishment is just. I think his wrongful conviction prior to this unfortunately set the stage for this claim. And by the way, I am open to the fact that I could be wrong here and I see the doubts. And look, if 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 I see a lot of new evidence, I might change my own opinion of this. But for now, I do believe his conviction is just. What are your thoughts? I waver back and forth because, you know, I do a lot of research in this area. And some people would say lightning doesn't strike twice, meaning if you're wrongfully convicted once, what's the odds of being wrongfully convicted again? But in fact, there are many cases in which people have been wrongfully convicted two, three, even four times. And this I didn't know that. Yes. um, I was actually working on a paper with Richard Leo um, on this exact topic a couple of years back. I'm not sure if it ever got published. But he had he was making this argument and we had a data set that was looking at this. And wow, the very the characteristics that makes an individual vulnerable to being a victim of wrongful conviction don't go away. If anything, they get compounded, especially because he had this suit filed against the police. So there is a reason why the police would want to frame him. I don't necessarily see that here. I waver back and forth on it. I do see maybe somebody else taking advantage of the fact that Stephen Avery maybe was an easy target given his violent history. Mm -hmm. And maybe somebody did pin it on him. 
but I don't feel comfortable really saying either way here. Okay, um, that's fair. I'm leaning more towards guilt of Stephen Avery and Brendan Dassey. I'm not sure without any corroborating evidence that I feel comfortable with what he was handed down. Right. I also, it pains me to think that Stephen Avery, if he is guilty of this and he knows that his nephew did not do anything, it pains me to think that he's standing so strong behind his lie that he's letting his young nephew go down for this. Yeah. Well said, Amy. Very well said. So procedurally, you know, justice, it's a, it's a very complicated question here. I saved our theory discussion for last because it really depends on your opinion of innocence or guilt, right? Megan, if you remember, my dissertation research and many of my publications has to do with post-exoneration offending. Yes. So this is like this exact area was of so much interest to me. And my argument was that people who are wrongfully convicted have a higher likelihood of being caught up in the justice system, but not because they're necessarily, you know, criminally minded, but it's because of some of these other things. Like even if somebody's wrongfully convicted, they're labeled someone who served time, they're labeled someone who's a criminal. So then labeling theory says we are what people believe we are, right? Right. But more importantly, I think strain theory in the sense that when people are released from prison who were wrongfully convicted, they're not given the support that they need to get back on their feet, much like anyone released from prison. But it's even harder for exonerees because they are not given the same services that parolees are given. And most importantly, I think prisonization. Mm -hmm. Because if you look at, and this doesn't apply to Stephen Avery because he had prior convictions. But in my research, if you look at people who did not have any prior convictions and then they were wrongfully convicted and then they committed a crime, I looked at that through the lens of prisonization. So you're taking otherwise law-abiding citizens, you're putting them in this environment, and then, well, what do you expect is going to happen when they come out of this? They're, you know, they're destroyed because of the deprivations they experience in prison. Wow, well said, Amy. Sounds like you've been doing some- I mean, some, this is my- I know. Yeah. I was going to say, it sounds like <laughs> you've been doing some research area. on this. <laughs> I, know, I have. And there's many more explanations. I can keep going, Megan, but maybe you should just read my dissertation if you're interested. I will, Amy. Thank you. <laughs> I've read some of your publications. We know you that. Have. So, um, But that really was well said. Uh, I think also, I think Stephen Avery was a career criminal in the making already. Yeah. So I would say- Maybe prisonization, play, not Stephen mm -hmm. Avery, but maybe there are other factors at play here. But I do believe that I saw serious evidence of him being a career criminal. Well, once you said he burned a cat alive, yeah. you know, and he was violent towards women. Yep. I mean, we're not talking about someone who had some drug charges no. or, no. you know, petty crimes. These are serious offenses. So, yeah, he was on a certain trajectory, regardless of whether or not yes. he did this. He clearly was on that criminal career path. I agree. As for Brendan Dassey, if he wasn't involved, I mean, it's super unfortunate what's happened to him. And if he was, you might also say that it seems like either way he was vulnerable to influence, right? If he's guilty, he was vulnerable to Avery's influence. And if he's innocent, he was vulnerable to the law enforcement influence, which doesn't mean that he has no agency and no culpability. But I do see substantial problems with his mm -hmm. situation here. At the end of the day, it's almost apparent why this is such a public story. But for the families of both Teresa and Stephen and Dassey, Brendan, this is an all-round tragedy, one for which there still remain so many questions. At the end, I hope for all the people involved, but especially Teresa and her family and any other innocent victims, that the questions will be answered and that they can find some, mm -hmm. you know, form of meaningful justice at the end of this tragedy. 
this episode is one that, again, reiterates the fact that even if we think we know everything about a case, we just don't. And it's always worth discussing because there's always more to know. I agree. Thank you for that, Amy. And thank you to everyone for listening today. And we will see you next time on Women in Crime. Women in Crime is hosted by Megan Sachs and Amy Schlossberg. Our producer and editor is James Varga. Music composition is by Dessert Media. If you enjoy the show, please remember to subscribe and leave a review. You can also support the show through Patreon, where you can get access to additional ad-free content such as virtual happy hours and an extra full-length episode each month. For more information, visit patreon.com slash womenincrime. Sources for today's episode include the New York Times, the Green Bay Gazette, State v. Avery, the Huffington Post, CrimeLibrary.org, and the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.